Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And in our Lily Langtree episode, we considered following up with a podcast on Oscar Wilde, and the response was overwhelmingly in favor of this. And it's probably because Wilde is a really inspired dramatist, and he's a talented poet and essayist. He's one of the best-loved Irish writers, which is pretty tough company, I'd say. But he's also a really amazing man, and I think that's the main reason people are so interested in hearing about him. He's this bizarre dresser. He's a public wit. He's a famously brilliant conversationalist. Which is something that's a little bit harder to talk about, of course, than his works. But one indicator of that is that Churchill chose him as the person he would most like to talk with in the afterlife. He's also famous, of course, for his tragic downfall, a libel suit that turned against him, cost him two years in prison, and ruined his name and reputation for decades after his death. And since June is Pride Month in the United States, it seemed like the perfect time to discuss a man who was so famously persecuted because of his sexuality. So we will start at the beginning, as we always do. Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde was born in Dublin on I don't October have 16th. Names. I know. <laughs> Clearly, neither of us do. He was born in 1854, and his family was of Dutch origin, and they were descended from an artist, appropriately enough. But the family had been in Ireland since the late 17th century, and since then they had mostly either worked in land management or worked as doctors. His father, Sir William Wilde, was a renowned ear and eye doctor and even invented a surgery for cataracts. He operated on the King of Sweden. And his mother was Lady Wilde, Jane Francesca Elgie, who was an Irish national nationalist and wrote poems and articles under the name Speranza. Which I think I want that to be my nom de plume if I ever <laughs> take one on. Oscar is the second son and his birth is followed by that of a sister named Isola and she dies as a young girl and it's a pretty tragic event in his early years. Switching to a happier aspect of his childhood, Wilde is a dedicated scholar from the very start. He may have later kept a library that mingled philosophers with the silly books and French pornographic writings that we might think of, but to forget his classical scholarly training was a mistake, and a fact that Sarah and I liked a lot was that he would tear off the top corner of pages in his books and eat it while he was reading. So, so a different kind of consumer. Well, and how much paper did this man eat? I mean, he was a very avid reader. One of Sarah's friends lent her an Oscar Wilde book and told her to be very careful with it. And she retorted that Oscar Wilde ate his own books. So he didn't really know what to say back to that. <laughs> So Wilde earns a scholarship to Trinity College Dublin, which we've talked about before because it's where the, the Book, Book of, of Kells is kept. And from there he goes to Magdalen College, Oxford, and he wins prizes in English and classics and also really comes to love the philosophies of John Ruskin and Walter Pater. And I was thinking, what English class doesn't start with some essay <laughs> on Pater? It seems they all do. Requisite reading for sure. But he takes Pater's teaching to love art for art's sake a step further. And as his son Vivian later describes it, he set out to idealize beauty for beauty's sake. So I think that's 
what we can think of as Wilde's philosophy in his writing. His dorm room was also a little different from mine. He decorated it with blue china and prints by Dante Gabriel Rossetti and Edward Byrne Jones, which... Again, big change from all the uh, M.C. Escher I remember seeing in my friends. And he was also an aesthete, believing that beauty is the ideal that we should all strive for. Yeah, tying back into that motto that we mentioned a second ago. But we're going to skip ahead now to London in 1879. Wilde has just arrived in the city, and he's going to be a writer and an editor. And he's going to do it in style because he dresses really flamboyantly, which is something that might be lost on modern people. You might just think it's old-fashioned, funny clothes. But people did not dress in black silk stockings. That was not your typical attire in this period. And people weren't wearing fur-lined coats and knee breeches. That was an Oscar Wilde exclusive. And this and his work and his larger-than-life personality got him satirized in the periodical Punch, and Gilbert and Sullivan added him to the routine, basing their character Bunthorn on him. And he didn't mind being linked to the aesthetic movement. He published poems in 1881 with his own money to help enhance this connection. Yeah, he didn't even mind if it was a mocking connection in some cases. He has a pretty good sense of humor himself. He writes a play, Vera, uh, shortly after this, which essentially... Uh, just putting it in a nice way, it's no importance of being earnest, and it only runs in New York City for one week, not at all in London. But by 1882, he's on a lecture tour in the United States and Canada, and this is really how he builds up his fame. When he arrives in New York, he famously declares that he has nothing to declare but his genius, which is going to go down in history books for sure. Uh, And then he makes a name for himself, touring, giving lectures, having conversations with people, and becoming famous. And when coming back from it, a star, he got to work in Paris on his next play, The Duchess of Padua, and he's writing it. It's a commissioned work for the actress Mary Anderson, but she turns it down and doesn't like it, which of course, isn't good for business. So he picks up the lecture tour circuit again, this time in England. But it doesn't last long. By 1884, he's settled down in London to marry Constance Lloyd. And despite his later trial and Constance's distancing of her family from her husband, she changes her and her son's last names. We shouldn't see their marriage as a sham. Vivian wrote about it Oscar was romantically in love with his beautiful young wife, and for some years, he was ideally happy. And they have two sons together, Vivian, as we mentioned, in 86, and a year before that, Cyril. And Oscar works a day job of sorts, and first as a reviewer for the Pall Mall Gazette, and then as an editor for Women's World until 1889. But Another important point to make here is that marriage marks a pretty big shift in his working style, and he had mostly written poetry before it, and after it, he turns almost exclusively to prose. And we have a quote from biographer Boris Brazel, noting that he began his literary career as a composer of sonorous and pleasing verses, in which, however, as he himself admitted, there was more rhyme than reason. Yet as he grew older, he seemed to have lost all taste for poetry. And I also think it's important to note that his only major, major poem written after his marriage is The Ballad of Reading Jail, written after his imprisonment. And his major literary years, where he's known 
so much for his literary brilliance is a pretty short span. It's from 1888 to 1894. His first major piece is The Happy Prince in 1888. That's a collection of fairy tales, but very poetical despite being prose. They're for kids and adults, and Sarah and I would like a copy. And there are more stories in 1891, uh, Lord Arthur Seville's Crime and Other Stories, and later A House of Pomegranates and the Sphinx. But also in 1891, he has his first novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which first appeared in Lippincott's magazine and was condemned by reviewers. And the idea for the novel was actually based, in fact, he had gotten it a few years before when he visited the studio of the painter Basil Ward. And Ward was painting this really lovely young man. And after the sitter left, the two agreed that it was too bad that this man's <laughs> beauty would eventually fade and die. And they wished that the painting itself could age and the man could remain forever young. And Wilde obviously thinks this sounds like the makings of a great story. And he also collects some of his philosophical essays eventually into intention. So this is a really, really productive span of a few years here for Wilde. Of course, he's also writing drama like 1891's Lady Windermere's Fan, which he described as one of those modern drawing room plays with pink lampshades. It's it's the epitome of a well-built play, although and, Katie admitted she was not as <laughs> much of a It's not one of my favorites. But he was called for after its debut performance and gave a bit too smug of a speech speaking to the actors. He said, I congratulate you on the great success of your performance, which persuades me that you think almost as highly of the play as I do. So not terribly modest there. He then heads off to Paris to write Salome in French and Sarah Bernhardt, one of the greatest actresses of her day, wants to star in it. And she sends it into rehearsals, but the play is stopped by the censor because no biblical characters are allowed on the English stage. And Wilde is really upset by this, really annoyed, and even considers renouncing his citizenship and moving to France, which... He probably should have. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that he doesn't. But he continues writing these funny plays that are great hits in England. In 1892, he puts out A Woman of No Importance, and this time when the audience cries for author on the stage, he, <laughs> he's a little a little cooler with his speech. By January 1895, he hits the big time when An Ideal Husband debuts and is attended by the Prince of Wales, and royalty does not come to a play on opening night, so it's a big deal. I guess they're waiting to find out if it's good before they bother. His last play was The Best of All, The Importance of Being Earnest, which debuted February 14th, 1895, but that's also when his troubles come to a head. And the root of all this trouble dates back to the start of this big literary success, actually, in 1891, when he met the 22-year-old poet Lord Alfred Douglas, who was known as, as Bosey, which was originally derived from his mother's nickname, Boise. And they meet at a tea party, and they become really good friends. They dine together. They stay at each other's houses. They travel together. And the first issue with this relationship comes up when Douglas gives one of his friends an old suit and the friend discovers letters in the pocket and their letters <laughs> always check your pocket yeah don't leave your incriminating letters behind so wild is blackmailed because 
these are rather incriminating letters. And this still isn't too big of a problem, though. The big issue comes later when Douglas's father, the Marquess of Queensbury, who absolutely hates the friendship between these two men and may have been a little mentally unhinged himself, goes after Wilde. And aside from his involvement in this whole affair, he's best known for the Queensberry rules of amateur boxing. So perhaps not a great man to get uh, in a tangle with. Guy to have trouble with, for sure. So as we mentioned, he didn't like this friendship, but he feels a little bit better about it after he meets Wilde, who managed to woo him over a long lunch. But in 1894, right when Wilde's fame is reaching its heights, he's angry again with the whole thing and demands his son stop seeing him. He says, your intimacy with this man, Wilde, must either cease or I will disown you and stop all money supplies. I am not going to try to analyze this intimacy, and I make no charge. But to my mind, to pose as a thing is as bad as to be it. And Douglas replies rather witheringly, what a funny little man you are. In a telegram, too. You can just imagine how his blustery father must have (laughs) taken that. So Queensbury starts to get pretty menacing after this. And he threatens hotel managers and restaurant managers who may be entertaining the men, harboring the men. And he shows up at the house of Oscar Wilde with a prize fighter. And Oscar tells him, I do not know what the Queensbury rules are, but the Oscar Wilde rule is to shoot on sight, which is a very menacing warning from this poet who his motto is beauty for beauty's sake. And then in 1895, at the opening night of The Importance of Being Earnest, Queensbury attempts to disrupt the show. So Wilde orders additional protection around the theater, and Queensbury's left outside for the course of the performance. But the final blow is when he leaves a card at the club that Wilde and his wife belong to that says, to Oscar Wilde, posing as a somdmite, and I'm not saying that incorrectly, he spelled it incorrectly, And Wilde was grossly offended. He wrote, I don't see anything now but a criminal prosecution. My whole life seems ruined by this man. I don't know what to do. Yeah, he's worried that his reputation is going to be affected. He's at the pinnacle of his fame right now. And Douglas, who really hates his father, urges Wilde to sue for libel. And a lot of his friends think this is a terrible idea. They they tell him that he'll have no hope winning it and that he should just get out of the country, move to France where it's more tolerant, and continue his writing career. But he decides to go ahead with the suit and engages Edward Clark to prosecute and swears to him that there's no basis to this libel. So that brings us to our trial, April 3rd, 1895. Wilde is incredibly confident with his suit. He testifies that, I said to him, how dare you say such things as you do about your son and me? And he also faces off Queensbury's key piece of evidence, a letter from Wilde to Douglas, Clark urges the people to remember that Wilde is a poet and that they should take this letter as the expression of true poetic feeling and nothing more than that. Yeah, so while this letter may seem really out there to you regular people, this is normal stuff for a poet. Exactly. And Wilde is, is really confident, as you said a second ago, he's sure that his fame and his popularity are going to carry him through this. And this even extends to his cross-examination by Edward Carson, who's representing Queensbury. And Wilde's responses make for really, really good reading. They're 
witty, they're sharp. Sometimes they contradict each other. So maybe it's not the best, uh, best stuff to be saying on the stand, but it does make for an entertaining read. Great to read. read, yes. The first part of the questioning focused on his literary works, which, while defended against charges of immorality, he said there's no such thing as an immoral work. Books are well-written or badly written. But his cocky responses started to die down when Carson asks about his relationships, his presence to young men, their uh, low intellectual capacity and perhaps unsuitability of, of some of his friends. But Wilde tried to play up his love of youth, which was something he valued in his friends above education or social standing. Yeah, so he tries to make like he's an equal opportunity friend here. He just loves youth. And things get really serious when Carson announces that he'll be introducing a witness who had a sexual relationship with Wilde. And this is very dangerous territory, and Clark knows it. And that's because in 1895, the Criminal Law Amendment Act had passed, which made it illegal to commit gross indecency, which was essentially criminalizing homosexuality. So it meant that this libel suit could become a criminal one with Oscar Wilde going to jail. So Wilde's counsel advised him to drop the suit, and no jury will convict Queensbury. It's just time to let all of this go. But by the next afternoon, Queensbury's representation has pushed the case ahead into criminal territory, and the inspector delivers the arrest warrant to Magistrate John Bridges, who adjourns the court for a short period, which may have been his way of trying to let Wilde escape, you know, heading out on, on a train to Europe. But he doesn't, and his name comes off of the importance of being earnest. Yeah, off of the playbills, off the marquee. Uh, and he just feels like his life is absolutely crumbling, that this this suit that he felt so confident about has completely backfired on him. And on April 26, 1895, his first criminal trial begins. And Wilde is accused of gross indecencies and conspiracy to commit gross indecencies. Uh, he's not prosecuted for sodomy, but male witnesses come to court and testify against him. And when he himself appears, he's very different from how he was in the earlier trial. He's quiet and very respectful. Yeah, respectfully denying everything. And in Clark's closing statement, he echoes most modern thoughts and says, clear from this fearful imputation, one of our most renowned and accomplished men of letters of today. And in clearing him, clear society from a stain. Which we interpreted as meaning that this shouldn't even be a crime. It shouldn't even be in court and they shouldn't even be having to respond to it. Well, and how embarrassing to, to put one of your biggest, most famous citizens on trial for something like this. So the jury can't reach a verdict, although they acquit him on one charge, and he's released on bail before the second trial begins. And you would think that people would let it be at this point, that that would be the end of it. And even Carson is urging people to lighten up. But the liberal government of England wants a conviction. One theory is that there were political motives for pursuing Wilde with this great intensity. And it's likely that the prime minister, Archibald Primrose, who was the Earl of Rosebery, had had an affair with the brother of Douglas, a man named Francis. And Francis is likely to have killed himself. And it's not long after he did so that his father, Queensbury, started going 
after Oscar Wilde so intensely starts this manic attack on him, hoping to, quote, save his other son. And it's possible that if Roseberry didn't go after Wilde and didn't try to to see his prosecution through to a conviction, that his own case and his own crime may have been exposed by Queensberry. According to Douglas Linder, Roseberry had insomnia and depression during the trial, but it disappeared afterward, which perhaps gives a little more credence to that theory. But this time, the prosecution is led by Solicitor General Frank Lockwood, and Wilde describes Lockwood's treatment of him as an appalling denunciation of me, like something out of Tacitus, like a passage in Dante, like one of Savonarola's indictments of the popes of Rome. Which we all know what that's like. So the jury finds Wilde guilty on all counts but one, and he's sentenced to two years of hard labor. Most of this is served at Reading Jail. And his sons, this is a really sad aspect of, of this story. His sons are sent to Switzerland, and they never see their father again. Their last name is changed. The, um, the wife of Oscar Wilde is really doing all she can to help shore up their reputation for the future. But they're still actually discriminated against as adults because of who their father was. And while he's in jail, Wilde writes De Profundis, a letter to Douglas. And when Douglas receives it, he destroys it after the first few pages. And Sarah, you read some of that. It's pretty brutal. And I think Douglas thought that it was the only copy and he could just get this really detailed account of their relationship and of all of the things that went wrong just erased from history. And it's not just a regretful letter because the friendship resulted in while being in jail. After all, he's writing this from prison. But it's regretful because he feels like Douglas cost him his art and he's ashamed of how much money they spent. And he accuses Douglas of loving his life, loving his uh, all the glamorous sides the of it. Celebrity writer. Yeah, the, per- the play premieres and the parties and the fame. But not having any respect for the quiet labor that actually went into all his writing. (laughs) The daily drudgery of sitting down and actually getting it on paper. Uh, Wilde had also sent this manuscript to his publisher, Robert Ross, intending to revise it later, and parts of it were published in 1905. Wilde and Douglas reunited for a time after prison, but after Wilde's death, Douglas tried to get the manuscript from Ross, but he instead presented it to the British Museum and embargoed its contents for 60 years. So imagine when this came out in 1960, it was a, Made quite a, a big deal. Um, so Wilde is bankrupt when he comes out of jail, and he goes to France to try to kickstart his writing career again. But the only thing he really produces is the Ballad of Reading Jail. And he writes letters to editors in concern about prison conditions, though. So he's he's still out there. He's just not producing it anywhere near the same frequency he was before his trial. Oscar Wilde died of acute meningitis from an ear infection November 30th, 1900 in Paris. And on his deathbed, he was received into the Catholic Church, which he'd long been interested in, along with mysticism. And he's buried at Père Lachaise in Paris. And interestingly, on the same trip, I saw the memorial to him at Reading and his tomb in Paris. And it's a pretty crazy contrast. The Paris Memorial is this huge winged figure and it is covered with lipstick kisses. There's a little sign discouraging people to 
go kiss Oscar Wilde's tomb, but clearly most people are not following that. It's surrounded by flowers. He's definitely got a lot of very devoted fans still. And at least don't wear that indelible lipstick if you feel like you have to. And pick a nice shade, too, because eventually <laughs> it turns into a grease spot. Something that Wilde would like. He was, <laughs> he was very concerned with beauty. Um, and we'd like to end on a note that's a little less sad. Sarah found a pretty cool article in the New York Times yeah, that's so, about Wilde and copyright law. Yeah, weirdly enough. You know the famous photo of him where he's wearing that fur-lined coat and the knee breeches and the silk stockings. It was taken by a celebrity photographer named Napoleon Cerrone, and it did play a very important role in copyright law in the United States. And that's because the photo had been reproduced as part of this New York department store's advertising campaign after he got so famous on his American tour. And Cerrone sued, and eventually the Supreme Court ruled that his photo should fall under constitutional copyright protection. And the ruling is still cited today in disputes over copyright laws. Right, the the Burrough-Giles lithographic company versus Cerrone. There's a little-known Oscar Wilde fact for you. And speaking of things of beauty, that brings us to listener mail. Our beautiful objects for today are two bookmarks that we received from listener Mary in Austin, who is five days shy of turning 13. So I guess she's 13 by now. Happy birthday, Mary. And uh, she wrote suggesting we do a little bit of history on Texas, specifically the Battle of the Alamo and uh, a few other things. She even suggested Texas might be ripe for a series. So let us know what you think. Yeah, I really liked the part in the back where she wrote, Texas loves you. So I'm just going to go around today saying that we're big in Texas. <laughs> if you would like to send us email, you can at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and see what we're up to on a day-to-day basis at Missed in History. You can also join our Facebook fan page and give us your ideas on what you think we should cover. And as always, feel free to check out our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the howstuffworks.com homepage. 